Hello, enthusiasts, and welcome to another episode of Wine and the Bottle. I'm your wine nerd host, Sarah. I recently sat down with Matt Reed, winemaker extraordinaire and founder and proprietor of PWR Wines here in the Napa Valley for a guided tasting and interview. As we enjoy Matt's wines, we'll discuss the behind the scenes of winemaking from choosing vineyard sites to making decisions in the winery to marketing and ultimately selling the product. So listeners, to set the scene, I want you to imagine a beautiful sunny summer's day in the heart of Napa Valley. Outside, the wind is blowing lightly, birds are calling, as we welcome Matt Reed to Wine and the Bottle. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to have you on the show. Maybe you want to tell us uh, a little bit about PWR and yourself. What's your elevator pitch? Uh, that's a really <laughs> tough question. I had an elevator pitch, and I, I've, I've attempted to throw it out the window, but I haven't written a new one. So let's see if I can resurrect the old one. Okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to make great wine that everyone can afford. I'm an Apple Valley winemaker. My day job is a winemaker. This is a hobby, but it's the same hobby I do in real life. I'm not a hobbyist winemaker. I didn't think I'd get stuck in Napa Valley. I thought that it would be a good place to start my career after getting my master's degree at Davis and that I'd move on to someplace like Anderson Valley or the Sierra Foothills or maybe even Walla Walla. Um, but I found Calistoga and fell in love with the town and got stuck. And that was all wonderful, except that I was making wines that I could barely afford, even at my employee pricing. My friends couldn't afford them. The people I would like to be my friends couldn't afford them. So that was a problem. Um, another problem is that, you know, mostly here in Napa Valley, we make Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. And I love both of those varieties. There's nothing wrong with Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay, but there's more to life. And I like variety. So um, creating this brand was a way for me to address both of those problems. I could work with any variety I chose and I could sell the wine at whatever price made sense to me. And uh, I wish the price were lower. All the wines I make currently retail for $19 a bottle, which by Napa standards is really low, but still like it to be lower. But there are economies of scale, and I'm, I'm currently producing 350 cases, so the economies of scale are not there for me. Looking yeah. at it in context, an yeah. average bottle of wine in Napa is 65 to $75. Right, and right. so the prices that you're able to offer as is for Napa standards are phenomenal. And, and that's you know something that I like to talk about is the accessibility of wine to the average person. Wine is community and it is family and it is exploration of taste and senses, um, which I think really aligns with BWR. Yeah, I think you've gotten it. That's the goal. And for sure, I want I want people to be able to get a really great bottle of wine without spending a fortune. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. You do that mostly by outsourcing from other ABAs? Well, yeah. I do occasionally have Napa Valley wines. This Pinot Gris that we'll start with is yeah. Napa Valley. But yeah, it's difficult to get the price point that I'm trying to get with Napa Valley grapes. So I buy grapes. I don't own any vineyards. And the four wines that we'll taste through today are all from different sites. Napa Valley Vineyard in the Okanola AVA outside of the city of Napa. Uh, Rosé that's from... It's really frustrating, this vineyard. I love this vineyard. It, it's 18 miles from my house in a straight line, but it takes two and a half hours to get there. Oh, those uh, country roads. <laughs> yeah, it's on the Berryessa Ridge, just east of okay. Lake Berryessa, yeah. and you just can't get there from here. 
So that's another vineyard. And the third is a Syrah from Flokini in the Petaluma Gap. And the fourth is from Sassoon Valley, a Petite Syrah. All over the place. All over I the love place. that. I've actually yeah. been to Cape Valley. I've tasted at Cape Valley Vineyards. Oh, cool. They do like a sparkling Viognier. And Ooh. it is so unique and yeah. so good. Well, um, ne- nothing I ever expected out of California wine. I'll look for that next yeah. time to break up my two and a half hour drive. What do you have for us today? Yeah, so well, the first wine is a Pinot Gris, again, from Oak Knoll District in Napa Valley. And this vineyard has already gone. Pinot Gris is disappearing rapidly. There's mm-hmm. not much of it left. Everything that's not Cabernet and Chardonnay is disappearing rapidly. In fact, Merlot has gone so far down in acreage that Merlot prices are now rivaling Cabernet prices because people want some to blend into their Cabernet and there's none left. Yeah. And and I think Napa Valley does a great job of both of those varieties. There's no reason they shouldn't be planted, but there's so many other varieties that can also really do well here. I hear a lot of winemakers and growers talk about Cabernet Sauvignon as a monoculture, and I don't think that's really fair. You know, saying we should diversify for ecological benefits and all that. And it's not really fair because it's all the same species. I'm not sure there are any ecological benefits to diversity, but there are enological benefits to diversity. It's really interesting to look at the history of Napa Valley and how it started versus how it is today and how much has changed. And I know you started this brand in 2009. That's right. Between then and now, it's been 13 years. Yeah. How has your brand developed in response to that change? There have been a lot of changes. In 2009, I started out, all of my wines were Napa Valley wines. One of them was produced from a vineyard that I was farming in exchange for the grapes. And that's a pretty common arrangement uh, here in the valley because a lot of people here have small like home vineyards and stuff. And maybe they planted them thinking they'd be home winemakers, but then realize this is a lot of work and I don't really know what I'm doing. And all I'm doing is making vinegar. You know, maybe I'll just let somebody else make this and they can give me some wine back. And then I also found a vineyard producing Syrah just south of Yontville that turned out to be fantastic. I made that wine until the prisoner discovered it and I couldn't buy the grapes anymore. It's okay. You know, I I lose vineyards and it's sad. Gives me the excuse to go out and find a new vineyard and that's fun as well. So I was making all Napa wines and with the Syrah vineyard, 2009, we were coming off of the 2008 crash. And so the market was uncertain. I started out paying 500 a ton for those grapes. They were worth far more than that, as they reminded me in 2010. They're like, you need to pay us a little more. And then I kept paying more until after 2012. It was like, you can't pay enough. Well, what's prisoner paying you? And they told me, and I was like, yeah, I can't do that. So I had to adjust. And I really love working with Syrah. It's a fun grape to work with. I really enjoy it. I did actually move over to Bennett Valley for Syrah. And it was the same kind of thing. A family had bought a 12-acre property. They had two acres of Syrah in front and 10 acres of Syrah in back, but they'd pulled up the 10 acres in back. They'd planted a truffier, a truffle farm. So it was a mix of oak trees and hazelnuts that they'd inoculated the roots. They got a daily weather update from the Piedmont region of Italy, and they tried to mimic that. They couldn't mimic the temperature, but they tried to mimic the humidity and rainfall. But they'd kept the two acres in front because they thought the vines looked pretty. They tried to make wine for a year and realized they had no idea what they were doing. So I came in and, again, I do the farming and get the grapes and I give them some wine. Mm. It was a family, but it was adult siblings. They're all in their 60s and they ended up having a falling out and, and bickering. They sold the place. Well, let's taste this. Yeah, let's so get back into to this. the Pinot Gris. Beautiful color, nice and crystal clear. Thank you. A lot of people, when they think of Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, they just want a poolside pounder. 
something that won't make them think. And so I try not to frighten the horses with this. You can drink this without thinking about it, but I try to make it interesting enough that if you do think about it, you'll be rewarded by that. You'll say, wow, this is actually interesting and complex and there's stuff going on here. So that's the goal. But I try to straddle the line here. You can tell me if I'm successful. But... I think so. Yeah, you definitely yeah. have a little bit of that depth and complexity. And right, right. I'm getting like honeycomb notes off the finish, but right up front, it's very bright, very acidic, nice yeah. and fruity. This would go excellent with like tilapia and Oh, yeah. Butternut squash puree. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think um, it can handle some spice, too. So, like, classic Genovese pesto or a walnut pesto or something, you know, that has some of those, the tannic notes from the walnut, from the pine nuts. Just sort of offset the acidity. Yeah. It's so funny. It kind of reminds me of, of, like, the interior of a pear compote. Without the crust, there's absolutely no... leaves or anything in this so it's very bright and fruity but it does make you think and I really like that I did listen to the previous podcast that you did in 2014 you mentioned um, a couple of the ideas in your winemaking philosophy things like innovation and experimentation and one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you did at the time I don't know if you still do is co-inoculation yeah. Is that something that you're still practicing? No, and there's a complicated reason. I recommend co-inoculation to all you budding winemakers out there. I think it's really cool. I love the fact that you know the wines are basically just done as soon as fermentation's done, and you can put them to bed and not worry about them, and that's fantastic. At the time of that first podcast that you referenced, I had been making the wine at Ballantine Vineyards, you know, custom crushing at Ballantine for two years. I guess one, because I hadn't been the 14 harvest yet. And I learned, unfortunately, the hard way that co-inoculation works best in a cellar that you control, not not in a custom crush facility. Just unfortunately, there's too much cross-contamination. And so I'm not complaining about Ballantine. It was wonderful making the wine there. I did it until 2020. And um, in 2021, my day job finally invited me to make the move the wine over there. So I did. It just made sense. Um, but still, we do custom crush there as well. And even though I control that cellar, I just think there's too much potential for cross-contamination. And, um, and so I've stopped co-inoculating. I think when you do have total control, it's a great thing. I've often heard winemaking described as the balance between art and science. Yeah. Um, and I know some winemakers lean heavily more towards one way or the other. So where on that sliding scale do you find yourself? Right in the middle. I love the art of it. I love, as a winemaker, I find myself right in the middle. With PWR, it's more on the science side, not because I take the science more seriously with PWR than I do with my actual day job. But because there's less art, because all of my wines are are single vineyard wines, I'm not doing blends at this point. That might change, but blending is where the art really comes in. There's certainly a role for it just throughout, deciding when to press, deciding when to harvest, deciding how long to mature and how to mature. Those are all decisions where art comes into the question. But mostly, I think the most clear way that art comes into it is in blending, and I'm not making any blends for PWR. But, you know, part of the goal is I'm working with vineyards that I think are doing a great job But if I can afford the grapes, they're not getting paid what they should be paid. So I feel it's sort of my mission to raise their profile and help them get the money that they deserve for their grapes. And when I do that, I can no longer afford the grapes and I have to move on, but that's fine. I want to showcase the vineyard, and that means lending isn't really an option. Yeah, there's something really special about a single vineyard wine because you really do get to showcase that terroir and there's a story behind it when it comes from a single place. Mm -hmm. I'm a storyteller. I love when you get to really hone in on what went into making the bottle that you have in front of you. Shall we move on? So this is from Capet. It is. So it's Grenache and it's from a cool little vineyard. I saw an ad saying that they had grapes available and I went up. There was a winery that I knew and loved called Casey Flat Ranch. Have you heard of them? 
No, um, I haven't. They existed for about 10 years. They thought that the Berryessa Ridge, which is part of the Cape Valley, was an incredible terroir, and I think they're right. And um, they thought that if they farmed it to the highest standards and made the wine to the highest standards, that they would be able to command the highest prices. Mm. And that turned out not to be the case. When it says Yolo County on the label, people just don't want to pay what they would for Napa. They tried mightily and failed, but I knew I knew that the wines were amazing, and so the grapes certainly had potential. And so when I answered this ad and went up to see the vineyard, my first question was going to be, where is this vineyard in relation to where Casey Flat Ranch was? They beat me to it. They said, so this used to be Casey Flat Ranch. Sold! <laughs> I'll, t I'll take the grapes. Now it's up to me to, to do as good a job. You know, there are many ways to make rosé, and uh, they all have their pros and cons, but this is a Seigneur, and the, the red is still maturing. I'll bottle it next spring. And I've already signed up to buy the same grapes again this year. So it's oh. Grenache, which is a fun grape. It's a difficult grape, but I think when done right, it makes delicious wine. And I'm super happy with this rosé and the and the red that's maturing in barrel now. It just tastes amazing. That's so, exciting. It's like, oh, here's a little teaser. Right? Let's see. It's a nice yeah. pink, almost borderline salmon, but it's yeah. very pretty, very pale. It's very pale. I was pouring at an event recently in, under bright fluorescent lights, and every time I poured it into the glass, it just looked white to me. I was like, did I pour the wrong line? What did I do? <laughs> it's so translucent that it blends yeah. in with its environment. Right. With both of the wines we just tasted, this one mm -hmm. and the Pinot Gris earlier, I've had so many people tell me, so this is sweet, right? And I'm like, no, that actually bone dry in terms of residual sugar, there's none. Totally fermented dry. But there is a real strong perception of fruit. Yeah. And that's the thing that I hear often with people who are new to wine. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is a sweet wine. No, it's a dry wine. Psyched out. Your brain just thinks it's sweet. The magic of wine there is that it it's is. very much a perception thing. Yeah. And everyone tastes differently too. Absolutely. That's a huge component. And to that point, there are a lot of flavors that we know are one note, like vanilla comes from vanillin or vanillin, however you want to say mm -hmm. it. So it's there or it's not. Now your threshold and all that might be different than mine. So I might pick up a lot of vanilla where you're like barely getting a hint, but that's all there is. There are other aromas that we both would recognize as strawberry that is not a single component. It's several, and they have to be in the right proportion for it to come across as strawberry. Well, if your threshold for one of those components is higher than mine, then I might be getting tons of strawberry where you're not getting it at all. And so it's not like you're wrong. If four of the five people you're tasting with are getting tons of strawberry, you're not. You're not wrong. You just have a different way of sensing it. That's why I love comparing tasting notes with other people. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I, I'm getting this. What are you getting? Oh, I'm getting this. Oh, yeah, it's there. But I barely see it. So it's, it's right. really kind of yeah. neat experience. Again, speaking to that whole community aspect of wine. Like right. it's much right. more enjoyed with other people. Gotta share it. I get kind of watermelony, strawberry hints, but I am also getting almost pear drop, which my brain will sometimes interpret as banana. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I've often found that I interpret pear drop as banana and violet as crushed crayon. Interesting. So yeah. when I smell that, I know I'm like, yeah. okay, most of the other people around me are going <laughs> right? to say violet or pear drop, but I'm going to say banana and crushed crayon. Well, tell so. me about crushed crayon. Is that sort of, a, are you getting a waxy note? It's like a sense memory. It's almost like play-doh mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a waxy yeah, okay. thing but yeah. it's just more that like scent profile just reminds me of yeah. like melty crayon that's cool i'm gonna it's, have to start thinking it's about that. really weird because <laughs> sometimes when it's really strong violet note like on an oregon pinot noir i'm like oh well yeah that smells like violet sure. like straight out of the garden i so, think you could stick with crushed crayon 
nice and light on the palate. You still get all of the fruit and a little bit of fruit development there. Right. That's really neat. Yeah. I'm not usually a rosé person. I find that a lot of them remind me of Jolly Ranchers and I oh, hate Jolly yeah. Ranchers. I, uh, I hear that. <laughs> you mentioned watermelon earlier, which is definitely a Jolly Rancher flavor, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think it's a little more subdued. I'm intrigued. I didn't find any floral in this yeah. or the Pinot Gris. Yeah. I hadn't thought about pear in terms of the rosé before, but pear with the Pinot Gris makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It's sort of more poem fruit than stone fruit even, but maybe yeah. a little stone fruit, maybe a little some bit, peach, yeah. but yeah. It's light, it's in there. Yeah. I always find rosé to be a summer wine. Yeah. Everyone loves to drink it in the summer. So I think this would be a really nice barbecue wine. Oh yeah. One of those like, 4th of July, let's grab a bottle right. of this. And it's not sweet, but I think it has enough sweet fruitiness mm -hmm. to stand up to like a sweet bar barbecue sauce. Or something yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like yeah. an apricot based barbecue right. sauce. All right. Well, let's get into this Syrah. This Syrah is from the Petaluma Gap AVA, a vineyard called Flokini. I was first turned on to it by my friend Scott Sizemore, who had a brand called Waxwing Wine Cellars. He just closed it down, um, sadly. He was making wine from Sonoma Coast and Petaluma Gap all the way down. He was based in San Carlos, so all the way down to through Santa Cruz. I loved his Flokini Syrah. He thought that I would like to make the Flokini Syrah as well, so I, I accompanied him on a vineyard visit one time and met the Flokinis, who are old-school Italian farmers in the middle of the Petaluma Gap, right on Lakeville Highway in the middle of, of that AVA, next to some really famous vineyards. And all this, this one hasn't gotten famous yet, but it will, I think. I just couldn't make the pricing work. Well, 2020 comes along, we've got all the fires. They had buyers who dropped out, and they lowered the price. And I was like, well, did you have smoke? Oh, sure. There's smoke right now. <laughs> okay. Um, if the wine I make is smoky, will you give my money back? Nope. <laughs> okay. I'll take it. <laughs> I only bought a ton, so I made 62 cases. It's got the smokiness of Syrah, but not the smokiness of ashtray, which is what smoke taint is. So I'm confident there's no smoke taint in this. Every time I taste it in barrel, you know, yeah. I was afraid. It's like, is it going to taste bad now? It just kept <laughs> tasting great. So I'm really happy with it. I, I hope I've done it justice. But this is unfortunately a one-off because now that there's no fire, let's hope, uh, price is back up. Price is so, real back up. Yeah, so this is, yeah. this is a limited release. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm really happy to have had a crack at it because I always yeah. wanted to and now I had my chance and I'm so happy with this wine. I'm really, I, I hope you like it too. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The, I ha famously have said, uh, recorded to have said, <laughs> that Syrah often tastes like turkey blood and, <laughs> and you just have to find the right one yeah. that doesn't taste like turkey blood. And I found a couple. Um, Hudson Vineyards does a really good Syrah. Yes, they do. Um, yep. Pricey, but really good. Yeah. A lot of the times, for me, um, it's just a little too lean. I'm, I, yeah. I know that you like the uh, Cote Roti yes. uh, style yes, of I Syrah. Do. I can't wait for you to say, oh, yeah. Oh, this is he it. was so right. <laughs> okay, I'll put it on my list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any producers out there that you particularly like? It's all so expensive. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. I would name a Georges Renee, who's actually not in Cote Roti, but he does produce a Cote Roti. He buys grapes. And he's dead now. I did get to meet him. Oh, um, cool. <laughs> so my wife and I were in, we were on a tour of France and we were going down the Rhone Valley and we, and we didn't know anything about tasting wine in France. There aren't tasting rooms. You don't just, you know, walk in and taste. But their addresses are published. By the time we got to the Rhone Valley, we knew this, but we also didn't, this was pre-cell phone. We didn't have any way to make an appointment, you know, so mm, we were just like, we'll just, just take our chances. wander in. Yeah, so, so we wander in and, you know, we, we ring the doorbell two or three times at Domaine Georges Vernet. And we're just giving up and about to leave when a car pulls in, and, and it was Georges Vernet, 
pair and Christine Vernet, his daughter-in-law, might have been somebody else, but I think it, it was just those two. And um, and they're just like, what are you doing here? And they're like, we we're just hoping we could taste some wine. And they're like, well, this is not how you do it. It's like, yeah, we know, we know, but, you know, <laughs> but we were just passing by and thought we'd try. So my wife spoke French. It was funny. As soon as we started talking wine, I could understand French. But anything else, I was just like, right. wow, you know, um, but but so my my wife and, and they were talking and. So George figured out that we were from California, and he's like, oh, so you know Randall Graham? And we're like, well, yeah, we've met him, but we don't know him, you know? But he didn't really get the that part. He's like, oh, you're friends with Randall, you know? Sure, we're friends with Randall. I mean, this is ancient history now. This is like the, back to the early 90s, but Randall Graham imported a bunch of Roussan. I don't, did air quotes for all of you who can't see my fingers. He thought it was Roussan. Everybody thought it was Roussan. Uh, it turns out it was Viognier, but he sold it to lots and lots of other people who then found out it was Viognier and sued him, and it was a big kerfuffle back in the 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and we, I won't get into any of that. But Georges René um, is convinced that Randall Graham saved Viognier, that, that that was the moment where Condrieu, which is the Rhone Appalachian AOC, where Viognier is the only grape permitted, there were fewer and fewer growers every year. People were giving up. They were just going to be done. And then Randall Graham made Viognier trying to make Roussan, made Viognier popular in the United States, and that saved Condrieu. And wow. so he was like, and you guys, you guys are his bosom buddies. Like, not really, but you know, <laughs> sure. For today's purposes, <laughs> yes. <Right? Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it worked out. We had a great, we had, ended up having a great tasting. The wines were fabulous. He was wonderful. She was wonderful. Um, it turns out um, she and I have a mutual friend, so we reconnected over that just recently, oh, wow. and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was neat. And I, I, I wrote, I told her all the story again, you know, because I wasn't sure how much either of us understood at the time. So I told her my perspective, and she's like, "Oh, thank you for sharing. That was really nice." Oh, so, yeah. the world of wine is so small. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the whole world is small when you really look at it in context. But yeah, but that is that's just crazy. Yeah, how, how it's all yeah. connected, and yeah. who knew? So I, I mentioned earlier that. I love Syrah. I love working with it. It is one of my favorite varieties to drink, but it's also, it is my favorite variety to make. Okay. Um, and I think there are two reasons for that. One is that like varieties like Riesling and Pinot Noir, if they're not played in the right place, you cannot make good wine, period. You're just done. Yeah. And similarly, I think if they are planted in the right place, you make them right and you've got a great wine, you screw up and you've got a bad wine. I think Syrah is really cool in that it can be in a grown in a cold climate, a medium climate, a hot climate, and it'll make a different style of wine, and you might prefer one or another, but it's still a decent wine, right? It's not like, you know, a hot climate Riesling, like, nobody wants that, <laughs> no. whereas a hot climate Syrah becomes Shiraz, and lots of people like that. Yeah. You know, it's not my favorite, but, but a lot of people <laughs> like it. So, you know, so there's that. And then also, to the second point, Syrah is much more forgiving in one sense, but also allows a lot more creativity because you can push it in different directions. Personally, I don't think you can push Pinot Noir in a lot of directions. You, you gotta do what it wants to do. Syrah, you can, oh, sure, I'll do that, you know, and, and so it's really fun. You can play um, with it. You can play with it. So this is about 50% whole cluster. Um, I love the whole cluster element to Syrah. I do like the flavors it adds, but I also really like the playfulness of it because <laughs> when you have even 50% whole cluster, you have to get in the tank and tread on it. There's no other way. It's so much fun to tread on whole cluster 
fruit. Doesn't matter what the variety is. I've done with Pinot as well. But and about the time that you don't need to do that anymore is about the time that it becomes dangerous when there's enough CO2 coming off that you might pass out and die. That sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I like that this is right in the middle of those two styles of, that we mm -hmm. were talking about. It's not super lean. It's not super bold. It's right in the middle. Right. Um, yeah, I'm getting floral notes off of it now. But yeah, I am getting you know rose petal and and cranberry, raspberry, like mm -hmm. red fruits. But there's also sort of bramble leaf going on. There's a lot of complexity mm -hmm. in this wine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not I'm not picking up so much right now, but in general I think what the stems bring is a, some a, an olive character. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of almost saline. Yeah. Um, There's a yeah. little bit of that on the palate. Yeah. Um, I'm not getting it as much on the yeah, nose either, either. but no. definitely a savory characteristic, yeah. which is, Syrah yeah. is so well known for, that mm -hmm. savory characteristic. A little gaminess, but not, yeah. not turkey blood. Thanks. It's a compliment. And it's mid-body, so you're yeah. not feeling like it's too heavy and it's not right. super light. Right. This is probably a wine that you could consume with just about any meal. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, anything from pizza to, to like, you know, lamb shanks, it, it's flexible. Absolutely. Yeah. So my question for you is, do you notice any difference working with Flokini Vineyard than with the Yontville Vineyard? Definitely. So Yontville, and particularly the site, which is right at the base of Wapo Hill, that's cool climate by Napa standards, but this is much, Petaluma Gap, where Flokini is, is much cooler. Mm -hmm. And I think this is more aligned with my goal of Cote Roti. If you had to tweak this to make it more Cote Roti, what would you have done? Maybe 100% whole cluster. I worked under a winemaker whose philosophy was whole cluster is either all or none, like none of this 10%, 90%, 50%, like just do it or don't do it. And I see his point, but I also don't see his point. But at the same, you know, in terms of this wine, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have hedged. I should have just gone all in. The things we think of in hindsight, right? Right. I noticed on your website that you proudly state that all of your wines are vegan friendly. Yeah. I assume that means that you don't use an any animal product in your fining processes or any of the winemaking processes. Was that something um, that you decided early on or did you kind of come into that? How did you make that decision? So I happen, personally, I'm vegan friendly. Oh. I like I like vegans. <laughs> I'm not vegan myself, but I'm, okay. I'm, I'm fine with vegans. Uh, I think they're cool people. Honestly, that was just, to me, it's just a no brainer. I was getting questions. People were asking me, are your wines vegan friendly? And I was like, that hadn't occurred to me of, but yes, they are. I mean, aren't, isn't wine just made from grapes? And I thought about it. I was like, oh, right. People add horse protein and cow protein and eggs. Then I was like, yes, they are. They're, my wines are vegan. I don't like fining at all. I'm not anti-filtration. But fining, to me, that's what you do to correct your winemaking mistakes. And I don't make any winemaking <laughs> mistakes. I Okay, uh, you know, I've, I've, there are things that I wish I hadn't done, I guess. But mostly you find, in red wines, you find to reduce tannin. And... I am on top of my fermentations. I don't let my wines get too tannic. I don't find at all. It's not like I'm finding. I have experimented with uh, Vegicol, which is a potato protein based finding agent, because I was just curious about it. I want to see how does this work and what does it do. I actually don't like the flavors that it adds to the wine. Uh, the whole point of a finding agent is that it, it pulls itself out. It shouldn't add anything, but I didn't like what it did to the wine. So I opted out. I didn't have a finding need anyway. I still don't feel like I need to find my wines. So it's not like I'm all the wines are vegan friendly and I'm cool with vegans and that's great. But it wasn't like this is important to me. I'm going to do this on purpose. It was just that I don't feel the need to find anyway. Hmm. Well, therefore, my wines are just made from grapes, so they're vegan friendly. People care about that. Why not? let them know that this is the case. Yeah. Well, I want uh, our listeners to know just how beautifully inky 
this wine is. And Petite Syrah is just so well known for being bold and dark and tannic. So I'm really intrigued to see how yeah. you worked around all of those things and integrated them into this wine and made it your own. Oh, I so. hope you like it, Sarah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Petite Syrah is really fun. I feel like with any variety other than Petite Syrah, I'm building something up. The, the grapes bring me this material, and I shape it into the wine. Petite Syrah, I feel like, brings me a block of granite, and I've got to chisel it into the wine that I want. Sort of a different approach. Petite Syrah is big and bold and tannic. I want it to stay true to itself. I also want it to be drinkable. <laughs> drinkable uh, now, too. <laughs> right, not just, like, right. leave it in your cellar for 18 years, and right. maybe it'll be drinkable yeah. later. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's take yeah. a look here. Blackberry, plum cassis right off the nose yeah. all these big bold black fruits yeah yeah and so th this vineyard is one i discovered at i worked for quixote vineyards in, here in napa valley in the mm -hmm. stags district which specializes in petite syrah and when i got there they had their second vintage of what they called pretense in the cellar so i hadn't made it but it was in their cellar waiting to be bottled and it was from this vineyard and the idea of pretense was that it was going to be a cheaper version of their estate petite syrah, which was like, at the time it was 70 bucks, it's probably a lot more now. And then they realized that, huh, making a $25 petite syrah that tastes really amazing when you're trying to sell a $70 petite syrah that also tastes really amazing isn't really the best business plan. So they they ended the pretense program and one of my first tasks at Quixote was to call the grower and say that we weren't going to buy the grapes anymore. They made you the but bad guy? They made me the bad right guy. Right off the bat? <laughs> they did. But I had tasted it in the barrel, and I knew it was really good, and I knew that I could afford the grapes. I called up the grower, and I said, hey, you know, I've got bad news. Quixote's not going to buy your grapes anymore. But I've got good news. I'll buy your grapes. So it all worked out, and that was a, a long, long relationship. Um, really happy. And then um, I turned on some friends to this vineyard, and they started making petite syrah from it. And then they started making some Grenache not from this vineyard, but from the same grower. And I was like, I didn't know he made Grenache. I'm like, oh yeah, we're taking it all. It's like, I turned you on to this and you didn't, like, what? <laughs> so I, I called the grower and I was like, why, why'd they get the Grenache? And he's like, you can have it when they stop buying it. They did stop buying it eventually and, and I got it and it was great. But you know you're onto something good when that happens. I would say that's a testament to your taste. I really like this. It's nice and bold and yes, there's a lot of tannin, but it, also provides this beautifully long finish mm -hmm. and the whole time that you're sitting here and chatting you can taste all of those flavors and still feel the texture and it's not gritty tannin it's right. nice and smooth i think this would be a standalone wine like drink it by itself by the fireplace i agree um, oh yeah it yeah. pairs well with fire <laughs> that's a really awesome wine yeah thank you so when you're out there and you're looking for maybe new grapes to source from what are the parameters that you're looking for well, I want great grapes that I can afford. Two really different things. Yeah, usually it's people who are pouring their heart and soul into it, but just haven't gotten the recognition yet. For several years, I, I made a Zinfandel out of Mendocino County, right outside of Hopland, from a place called The Poor Ranch. The Poors are amazing people, but they had been selling their entire vineyard to Fetzer, and Fetzer, at, after the 2012 harvest, gave them the check and was like, we're done. Ooh. And that's how things began with me. They contacted every winemaker in Mendocino County and said, we've got grapes. A friend of mine in Mendocino County sent it to me thinking I might be interested. I was, I made an appointment to go out and visit. They gave me a great tour. It was really neat to meet them and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. I think I'll take two tons. They're like, we wanted you to take the vineyard. I'm like, I can't do that, Ooh. but I've got friends. <laughs> I didn't find them enough. And my friends didn't buy all the fruit, but um, they bought a lot of it. And so as they raised the price, they kept my price 
low, but eventually it got to the point where they were able to sell all the fruit at the price that it should be sold for, and I was like, you know, I'll get other grapes. This is fine. So we parted ways, but, but they're super cool people, and I, one of their buyers is a friend of mine who has custom crushes at Benessery, so I still see the grapes, and it's so fun. I see, I meet them when they deliver them, and I was like, <laughs> this is great, and then I smell the fermentation. It's like, oh, I remember that smell, you know, because mm. um, th that is, talk about terroir, they've got a distinctive sight qualifications for sourcing. Oh, a lot of it's word of mouth, right? Like, you know, so I, I helped a lot of people find that vineyard and they're really grateful to me. So they find a cool vineyard and they're like, hey, you know, they've got a, l a few extra tons of whatever and check this out. What I'm currently buying is the Grenache that we already discussed and Tempranillo from Scribner Bend in Clarksburg, AVA. And I got turned on to that. My, a friend of mine was the winemaker at Elise and Elise sold and he had to move on and he didn't find a job in Napa Valley. So he ended up moving out to the Delta, and, and he became the winemaker at Schooner Bend. I went to visit, I tasted his wines out of barrel, they were amazing, including the Tempranillo, and I asked if there was any fruit available, and there was. In that vein of lifting people up and, and that mutual relationship that you have with, with your growers, I saw on your website that you are vine-based supported. Yes. So what can you tell me about vine-based and, and how it's impacted your production? So, but so Vinebase is really cool. I just learned about them recently, I'd say within the last six months. I read an article in the Napa Register. The Napa Register article was talking about how Vinebase was like the Etsy of small wine producers. And it may be, that's what got me excited about Vinebase. That part of it hasn't really materialized for me. Like I haven't gotten any orders from people who just came to Vinebase and then found me and ordered some wine. Okay. But that's okay. Um, in time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Actually, on... This past Thursday, um, Vinebase had a winemaker dinner gathering over in Santa Rosa, which was super fun. You know, we all just brought wines and they provided dinner and, and we had a great time together. A few of the winemakers there I'd met before, but most of them were new to me and, and it's a great opportunity to share ideas. Vineyards, <laughs> sales techniques, oh, this is hard for all of us. Winemakers make wine. That's what we do. We're good at it. Selling wine is not what we do. We need to do it, but but it's hard. Marketing and, is hard. Yeah, and none of us have a clue. I mean, I can read all the things that I should do, but I can't do those things necessarily. You know, just like I could tell a random person how to make wine, but they couldn't do it necessarily. You yeah. know, it's not my wheelhouse, my skill set. So that was super fun. Vinebase is a great community. The people are cool. They take care of so much. They took over my website and they made my website so much better. Your average listener might think that a winemaker just sits around buying grapes, making wine, and then in the off-season drinking wine. We have so much paperwork to fill out. So much There's so much reporting. There's so much legal compliance and stuff. And Vinebase makes that very easy. They also have their, an in-house marketing team. And every week they push out like three new ideas. Like, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And when I write back and say, wow, you know, idea number two, I'd really like to do. I don't have the bandwidth this week. They're like... Send us some pictures and we'll take care of it. I wanted to also talk about Vina Shipper. Which before I found Vina Shipper, I was legally able to ship to eight states with licenses. And then there are a few like DC and Florida don't require licenses. So I could ship to like 10 places. But the fact that I could do that didn't mean that it was easy. I had all that reporting to do. Like whether it's monthly or quarterly or annually, there's, there's a lot of work involved in all that. Vina Shipper has licenses in almost 40 states, I think it's like 38 at this point. 
and they handle all of the paperwork. They handle all the licensing. They'll handle almost all the reporting. Some of it I still have to do, but it's, it's so much easier. The first of every month was always like, okay, now i got to sit down and do all this stuff. And now I don't. And it's just great. That gives you more time to do the things that you love to do and exactly. not that you have to do. Exactly. It's those behind the scenes things that I don't think yeah. that a lot of people think about. Alcohol regulation in the United States is still so bonkers because none yes. of it really is uniform. Every state has its own regulations and yeah. makes it really tricky for someone like you who's trying to run your own operation right. and ship across the country when maybe the state won't let you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, every December we celebrate the repeal of prohibition. And what people don't understand is that prohibition wasn't repealed. It was sent back to the states. Alcohol is the only industry that's not subject to the Interstate Commerce Clause. So every state can make its own rules and they do. They certainly and, do. And it's a pain. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we go, how do people find you and find your wines? My website's the best way to find me, pwrwines.com. And I'm at TWR Wines on Facebook and, and Instagram. Email, text, my phone number's on the website. I don't have a tasting room, but if you're coming to Napa Valley and would like to meet with me, taste with me, if the timing works out, I'll happily host you in my home. Or if it makes more sense, come to wherever you're staying. I'll you know bring wines and we can have a little tasting. It's fun. Great. Well, listeners, thank you so much for being wine enthusiasts along with us. And until we share the next glass, cheers. <laughs>